Well, take, uh, take your hand out. We're going to continue this morning in our study of the book of Luke, the doctor's gospel. I've called it the uh, myth of neutrality uh, by way of title. In uh, Luke's gospel, chapter 11, we're going to look at verse 14 uh, to verse uh, 23. And then uh, something unusual, I usually don't do it, I usually refer to it, but we're going to also take and read uh, the parallel account in Matthew because by God's direction, Matthew's going to add some details uh, that help us to understand fully uh, all that's going on here in the life of the Lord in this message I've entitled, The Myth of Neutrality. You know, during World War II, the big one, the WW2, some of you were, uh, uh, were born at that time, and I don't think any of you fought in that. Am I right in that? Yeah, that's right. And, but uh, it was the big one, they call it. When most of the world, world was at war, uh, there were a few countries that attempted to remain neutral. And it's rather amazing when you think of all the uh, nations, so many of them in the world that were fighting, the, uh, uh, and yet in the midst of it, even there in Europe, there were a couple notable countries, most notable uh, is Switzerland, that uh, remained neutral. Uh, you see, they, uh, they reasoned that due to their fortuitous situation, having the Alp Mountains surround and fill their country, that they were impenetrable, and therefore they were protected by that natural border and could remain neutral, avoid choosing sides. It's rather amazing when you think about it, uh, being so close to, to Italy, the axis there with Germany and in Italy and, and even Franco and Spain, and yet in the midst of that, uh, they could remain neutral. Now, as an aside, I don't think that could ever happen anymore, even though they may claim the battle and the technology and warfare today has completely changed, and it's not so much can we get over the mountaintop with, uh, with a vehicle or vehicles. I mean, people fly right over and missiles drop and all that satellite warfare but for many, 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 many centuries, uh, Switzerland had that notoriety. Sweden as well, but Swiss, Switzerland right in the midst of all the battle that ripped Europe apart from the gut, and millions of people lost their lives. Well, they remained neutral. Well, there was a day in the life of the healing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and we're going to read that text where he taught that all people everywhere that uh, all people everywhere uh, are either for him or they're against him. There's no neutrality. It's a myth. Now, I grant you, most people who uh, are not Christians uh, would, would say that they're not against Jesus. But when you read the pure teaching of the Scriptures and you see the depravity and the lostness of men and women by birth, they're born lost. They're born alienated. They're born uh, children of darkness. Uh, they're not neutral. When you meet people on the street, people in your family, people in the classroom, at the office, wherever, th we have this, this idea in our hearts that somehow I'm, I'm the bar of neutrality. I'm fair. You ever see that? They think they're fair. And they're the arbiter. They're the judge of what isn't or is right or wrong, fair or just wicked or whatever, they're the arbitrator. They're neutral. We're going to see in our text here that nobody is neutral. That's a total myth. It's a fabrication. Jesus said there's one or two. two. That's it. 
It's not like going down to the ice cream place. Some of you will do that after today, right? Some of you don't go unless it rains at one place. Uh, my kids said that once. Hey, Dad, it's raining. Let's go to the ice cream place. I go, wow, that really worked for... Who is it that does that? <laughs> now I know who goes there. <laughs> it's, it's raining. We get an extra dip for free. You know? <laughs> it's not like that. It's, it's one or the other, and the Lord makes it clear. This myth of neutrality is, is, is just that. It's a myth. All people everywhere, either for Jesus or the great masses, are against him. There could be no Switzerland, no neutral ground, no in-between, none, none. Therefore, all people everywhere must make the most important decision in life, and that is to come to their creator, God, Savior, Jesus Christ, bow the knee, the way to the cross is low. We must come humbly, admitting that we're sinners. Lord, you're right. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And it's true, Lord, I have sinned. The wages of sin is death. That's not only physical death, it's spiritual death now, and it's ultimately the separation of death throughout all eternity. There's only one way of escape. It's a problem so enormous, we could never figure it out. Never. God did it. Oh, the matchless wisdom of God. Paul breaks out in that doxology in Romans 9 when he comes to the end of the longest gospel chart. God figured it out. If there's going to be help for all people everywhere, for you and for me, it has to come from God. And people stumble around in life saying, well, I'm as good as my neighbor, or I'm trying to keep the Big Ten, or I'm, 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 I'm doing the golden rule, and they're kidding themselves. Can't do it. Our, our situation is so desperate, we're dead men and women by birth. We're against God. We're born against God. It begins with a selfish little child, like we all were, right? Me, my truck, me, myself, and I. That's us. Until God invades our life, if in grace He does that and has done that. And He invades your life and mine with the grace of the gospel. It is the gospel that's the power of God unto salvation that saves. And until that time, all people everywhere are lost. Jesus said, wide and broad is the way that leads to hell. Now, we like to, you know, think if uh, I'm on the winning team. What in the world happened to the Steelers last week, Mark? What in the world? Well, the Bills did so unbelievably great. But we want to be on the winning side. We think, well, God wins, Jesus wins. Aren't there going to be far more people in heaven? But hear the Lord's own word. Wide and broad is the way, and many are on this road. Listen, most people are on the wrong road, going in the wrong direction. Not my idea. I'm just simply the delivery guy. You're on one way or the other. It's like being on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. From here, you're either headed to Philly or you're headed to Pittsburgh. You're like, I don't like those choices. Can I go somewhere else? No, that's the road of life. You're going one way or you're going the other way. That's it. There's no, well, can I sit on the guardrail in between? No, you can't. At least if a steady comes by, you're in trouble. It's one or the other. It's a myth that I'm sort of, well, I'm in between. You know, I'm sort of, you're not, not sure, I'm open, I'm neutral. That's a lie. Listen, when I talk to people about the gospel, the advantage is always in my court. You see, you and I know something about the person that we're talking to. We know that uh, they're made in God's image. 
They have a moral knowledge of right and wrong intuitively. They do. They may deny it. They suppress it. They get fuzzy. They go like, well, it's postmodern day. There's no right. There's no wrong. If it feels good, it's good for me. I always go back to Joe Fletcher, prince, uh, professor at Harvard, wrote a book called in the 60s, Situation Ethics. You can't determine ahead of time what's right or wrong. You can't. Everything's kind of in flux, you know? And it's this, this relativity, you know, everything's relative. And, I, and, I, and, if, and, and talking to him, if I could, I can, he's dead. If I could talk, I'd say, Joe, you're not, you're not being serious. You're not honest. What do you mean? You would be the very first one if I broke into your house, got into your closet, and stole all the royalties you made from that book you would be the first one to call the cops say, that's not right. Well, it is. It felt, felt good for me. It felt good. You see, you can't even live in God's world made in God's image, knowing intuitively right and wrong. What is right? What is wrong? Even though you may deny it. You can't. So I know that as I talk to an unsaved man or woman. He knows. He has a God awareness. It's stamped, stamped right on his being. He can't even say... Uh, he's an atheist without using the word God. Atheist, non-God. He can't do it. And he uses the air God gives and his heartbeat and his lungs and the mind God gave him. And even a fist, if he does that, look at the marvel of the hand and the arm. It's incredible. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. Finger, look at nails at the end. Aren't you glad? So when you whack yourself with a hammer like I've done and the nail's hanging off, I go, it's not like I lost a chunk of my finger. You know, God made fingerprints. Every one of yours are different. Retinal lines, everyone's different. Hairs of your head are numbered. God is really that great. And man has a conscience. Isn't that amazing? You know your car doesn't have a conscience? When you go out in the winter and start it up in the morning, and it doesn't, it never feels badly about that. I let him down. Oh, you know, never. Really, never. Uh-uh. And, uh, and your dogs, and some of you are great dog lovers. And, uh, you know, you say, well, my dog, and it, I've, we, had a, we had a male at one point way back, and that thing was like, that thing was like the, the bad boy of the neighborhood. How's that? He had so many girlfriends. He did. He did. He just had a good nose and knew when to go when and all that kind of thing. And I saw his offspring everywhere. They look different, different places. But you know, the dog never felt badly about it. He said, you're an immoral pig. Never felt badly about it. God made him to be a dog. He's doing what dogs do. Actually, we should apologize to the dog world when we tell a person who lives like a dog or a pig that you're a pig because a pig and a dog do exactly what God wants them to do, what he designed them to do. They don't feel bad. You mean this is wrong? Dog never says that. But God stamped on your heart and mine a conscience. And it's an alarm system that goes off. Your car doesn't have it. Your dog doesn't have it. You and I have it. We're made in God's wonderful image. So when I talk to someone, when you talk to someone, they have a conscience. And they know there's guilt. And they try and suppress the guilt. That they've broken the moral, the moral law of God that's written on their heart. I'm saying all this to say they're not neutral. And nobody is. They're either for Jesus or they're against him. In polite ways or against one, or, or audacious ways. Fist shouting, I'm against God. 
And that's what Jesus is trying to point out here. Uh, when we, when we, we were in chapter 9, verse 51, we saw the major pivot of the book of, uh, of Dr. Luke's gospel. And he began to set his face to the cross and to Jerusalem. And from 951, that major point, you're going to see increasing intensity in the opposition of Jesus. It's like Satan is going to pull out all stops and dump on this glorious Son of God, the Messiah, the promised one. I mean, it is filled with opposition. It gets, it gets fiercer and fiercer and fiercer, if that's a word. Fiercer, is that a word? It's incredibly intense. And then we come to the chapter we're in now and the section we're in now and the next. And this becomes, this, this is the greatest statement. This is the lowest point of opposition that Jesus finds in his entire public ministry. They're going to culminate in the cross. They're going to crucify him. But here in our text today, we're going to see they couldn't deny his miracles. And his miracles were not a sideshow. They were to demonstrate the reality of who he was. And his opposers, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, could not deny it. They would have in a moment. That would have ended it all, right? That would have ended it. But they couldn't. The dead were raised. The lepers were healed. The blind, they could see. The demonized were delivered. They couldn't do it. So they come up with what becomes a blasphemous statement. It is the low of all lows. And they said, well, he, yeah, it's certainly true that he's done this, but he does it. How does he do it? He does it by the power of Satan, the prince of darkness. And so what they do is they say simply that Jesus is a tool of the devil. It, was, it is so blasphemous of a statement in attributing his power and glory. Take your Bible. Let's uh, read the text uh, quickly. Look at chapter 11, uh, verse 14. And notice, as we do, that very little is said of the miracle itself. Because uh, by uh, God's direction, he wants the, the discussion of the miracle and all that follows to be the major point. In fact, it's the shortest uh, expression of a miracle, uh, almost, with a, an exception of one or two, in all the New Testament. And it begins in 14, almost in passing. He says, now... Uh, he, that's Jesus, was casting out a demon, a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. There it is. That's all that's given to the miracle. And the people marveled. The crowds, wow. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. We'll see that. That's an old pagan word for lord of the manor. It refers to Satan. While others, while others, to test him, notice that, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, don't read over that too quick. You know God knows our every thought? Here he is in his humiliation as a God-man. They, they didn't say it. He could read their minds. God reads our minds and knows all of that. He reads their thoughts. Jesus says to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger then attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. He concludes, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now keep your finger in Luke, but look at Matthew's parallel account, Matthew 12. It's a shorter account, but he adds some significant things that help us to uh, see a little more fully what's going on here as we, we uh, harmonize both together. And verse 22, Matthew 12, 22, Then a demon-oppressed man who was, now notice, he was blind as well, blind and moved, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed, that's the crowd, and they said, look at this, they were getting it. They were getting it. Can this be the son of David? And when the Pharisees heard it, now we know who it is that's objecting, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man, look at the disdain there, they didn't even call him by name, this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, it says it again, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan, cast out Satan, is divided against himself, how then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But note this qualification, verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God, let me just say, the finger of God is the Spirit of God, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he gives the same illustration there. Well, there are two observations of Jesus' healing of the mute, calling us to choose him as our Savior and Lord. Remember, not to choose is a choice. I've said that to people many, many times. They say, well, I'm sort of in this in-between, and I'm open, and I go like, not to choose is a choice. And if you don't choose Jesus, you're still under the domain of Satan. Today is the day of salvation. Today. It's a myth. You're not neutral. You're against the Lord. You're a God-hater by nature, according to the Word. Maybe you're polite in it, but maybe you're not. Maybe it leaks through at points, and I'm sure it does. It's interesting that, that people that deny God often will damn God's name. People that claim there is no God, but in the midst of the intensity of anger, what not, They'll shout and curse and damn that person, call God to damn him, and you want to say to him, uh, is there God or is there not God? You said you don't believe in God. Why are you calling on God to damn the kid or damn the man or damn that? Make up your mind here. What it is is he cannot live consistently as a man, in that case, made in God's image, fallen in God's world, and be consistent. He cannot do it. He cannot do it. This is God's world. This is God's order. And he's, he's grossly inconsistent. The God that he knows is the God that he damns, and he damns one that bears the image of God. There are only two options and not ten. Well, first observation, men dispute with Jesus over the meaning of, the of his power to heal. You know, they're disputing. This is the high point of his rejection. The issue, what was the source of Jesus' authority to do the miracle? It was an undeniable miracle. Undeniable. 
They would have done that in a moment. You see, his work forces people to decide who he is. And Dr. Luke tells us in the briefest of words that Jesus healed a man who was demonized and could not speak. He was mute. That's what the word, we don't use the word mute too much today, but that's what it means. He, he was tongue-tied. He couldn't speak. He was blind and uh, was not able to speak. This is uh, only the latest in a long series of conflicts between Jesus and the devil. I mean, when you see him trying to obstruct and prevent uh, the birth of the Son of God back in the Old Testament, but just go from the public ministry of Jesus right after his baptism when he begins it, he goes into the wilderness and there's Satan right there. He's trying to derail him from the cross. The crown without the cross. Bow before me, I'll give it all to you. You know, what we worship is what we serve. And the Lord's answer revealed that. We should worship only the Lord our God. It was a battle that began then and continued for that three-year period of time, growing in its intensity and demonic activity. It was a titanic battle. It was the battle of the ages of the universe. And that's why there's all this demonic activity intensified during this three-year period of time, culminating in the master plan of God Satan thought he had the victory when killing him. And all, when God doing all the way through this, it's the cross where the victory comes. What a story. It's the greatest love story of all time. God so loved that he gave his only begotten son. It's marvelous beyond comparison. Far greater than the love story that was out a number of years ago. It's the true Hosea passage for sure. And so it, uh, I have on your sheet, it began in Luke 4, 1 to 3, 13 on the, on the uh, temptation to turn Jesus away from the cross. This time Satan had silenced a man's tongue. He was unable to express himself fully, either to God or to man. He was virtually a prisoner within his own body, all due to Satan. Now here's, here's the situation. We've got, uh, we've, we've got man, he's the capstone, and woman, men and women, Adam and Eve, the capstone of all creation. God does all of this. The sun, the stars, the moon, the ocean, the mountains, all of the garden, the beauty, the animal. Then he puts man and his helpmate, beautiful Eve, in the garden. And man is, uh, has the ability to speak. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Man the speaker. Uh, we have an inherent capacity for language pro programmed into our brain that only we have, made in the likeness of God. You know, he is there and he's not silent. Franny Schaefer wrote that. God speaks. In the beginning, God said, and he said, and it was. And man speaks. And man ushers forth the glory of praise to God through the tongue. It reflects our mind and our heart and of all creation. And it's at this point that in this man's life that the demon comes and occupies his soul and, and hinders him both physically in the eyes, we saw that earlier, and, but in his tongue. And makes it incapable of speaking, incapable of praising God, incapable of being a blessing to his neighbor. How terrible that would be. Have you ever seen folks after a stroke? So heartbreaking. You hope that it's only temporary, the results of a stroke where they, they can't speak and the side of their face hangs down or something. And uh, we, the doctor, we don't know, it'll only be time. And somebody who was a mom or a dad or someone, and they suffer that and and they can never, never speak quite right again, and it's where even though they get therapy and all that, it's heartbreaking. Imagine uh, the, the pain of somebody in your family, and maybe some of you have stuttered, and, and stuttering can be such a terrible thing. A lot of boys suffer from that more than the girls. Girls tend to be more verbal anyway. Have you noticed that? 
Have you noticed that? It's, I think, a spiritual gift or something. And they stutter, and you want to speak for them, and you shouldn't, and just get, 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 it, get it out, you know, to, to express. Imagine not being able to say anything, how frustrating that would be. I mean, in the earlier passage here, right before, Jesus taught them on prayer and the persistent prayer, and we saw that, the Lord's Prayer, and we saw that, and this man can't even pray audibly, and it goes right into this, his tongue is tied. The glory of the creation made in God's image should be able to praise God and pray in prayer and be a blessing to his neighbor and speak words of, of grace and blood. Can't even do it. Satan's got him bound up so he can't even speak. He's a prisoner in his own body. And so Jesus exercises the demon. Instantly the man is healed. Instantly. Notice not three days later, not ten, not, not ten minutes. Instantly. When God the Creator standing there the, demands the, uh, the exit of the demon, the man is healed. And the man praises God. This healing shows in part what happens when we come to know Christ, does it not? And the Lord Jesus has the power to restore people. Ultimately, it's a picture of, of uh, our bodies when they're put together during the resurrection. You know, our bodies are going to be restored. I don't know how God's going to do it, but He's going to restore it. You know, we're after 22 or 3, they say you're on the downhill side. Boy, it comes fast. <laughs> and it just goes downhill and downhill and downhill, and pretty soon you breathe your last, and the, or the Lord will come, and your body is going to be put, you're going to, you're going to be better than ever. Some of us will have full heads of hair and be stronger. No more sickness. No more tear ducts. No more tears. Won't that be great? We've, we've cried a flood of tears in life. And it's a picture of what's coming when the Lord heals us and raises us. Look at the Lord's own resurrected body. Oh, man, I can't wait. No more hospitals. No more funeral homes. No more, no more clinics. No more medicine. You get tired of going to picking up prescriptions? No more. The tonic that God will provide in our glorified bodies will be glorious. There's a picture of it. He heals the soul. He heals the speech. Our tongues are used for His glory. Glorious. What a gift. Well, since men be, since men in the crowd, and that we find in Matthew that they're Pharisees, they couldn't deny his heal, and they dispute the source of the authority. And there are two groups. And there are two groups that are antagonistic here uh, to them. The first, uh, we'll call them antagonistic. Phil Riken calls them that. And they claim that Jesus' authority was from Satan or Beelzebub, the old name for the devil, the Lord of the place, the manor, if you will. And the other groups, uh, they were the skeptics or the fence-sitters, falsely claiming, I need more evidence, more signs, give us another sign. And yet we know in the passage that they were not sincere. The text says there that they were testing Jesus, testing Him. They weren't sincere. They were hiding behind it as an excuse to continue in their life and in their sin and rebellion against God and to reject Christ. They didn't need any more evidence. They didn't need any more signs. We'll see that even next time. He talks about the, the, uh, the only sign that will be given to this unbelieving generation is Jonah. They didn't need any more. And if they did, he was going to give them one in a moment here. Like what? He's reading their minds, and now he's going to respond to that. And I say to you, is that not a sign? I think it is. You're reading my mind. I guess that's the sign I wanted. <laughs> wow. That'd be scary. Wow. That's what happened here. They're testing him. 
We'll see. Jesus replied to these men in only two options. He said, look, there's only two options for the source of my power. Only two. And I remind you of C.S. Lewis, who wrote in Mere Christianity. And this is a way to think about this, and you ought to know this as you talk to unsafe folks about their need of Christ. You only have these options when you talk about these logical options when you talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. And C.S. Lewis was right. He's either a lunatic, he's completely out of his mind. Now, we still live in a, a, a culture in a day where people won't say, yeah, that's what he is, he's crazy. They won't do that. There's a reverence there from previous days in some pockets. Maybe it's a godly grandmother over here, an influence, a friend. And they're not willing to say, yeah, he's nuts. He's out of it. And Lewis said he's, he's either, Jesus is either a lunatic or he's a liar. He knew the truth, that he wasn't any in all this, but he lied through his teeth. Lunatic, liar, or he's the Lord. He's Lord. Those are the only options you have. You don't have like 10 options. Can I have another? No. He's either not here or he is here and he's lying through his teeth or finally he's Lord. And I submit to you, he is Lord of all. And so he responds. Here's the God-man responding. He says, listen, you only have two options. The source of my power, verses 17 through 20. He knew their thoughts. He could read my mind. And he tells the people, uh, he's talking specifically to the people who were getting it. They were getting it. Is this not the son of David, the promised one? But their leaders slandered him and by blasphemy, saying he's doing this, yes, but by Satan. And so the Lord says uh, in verse 17, I remind you uh, his words, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? He tells this parable. A kingdom divided against itself, laid waste, a house divided is going to fall. And he's answering them using a statement that says, your reasoning is completely illogical. It can't be done. If Satan is contending against himself, it's a divided kingdom, it's a divided house, get ready, it's going to collapse on itself. It could never be. Satan empowering, attacking Satan. And we all understand what he's saying. A divided house uh, is illogical. And then second, he says, if Satan is divided, his kingdom will fail. If by Satan, who do your sons cast the cast out demons in whose name? Now that's a little bit of a problem, wondering who, who are these sons? And there's a divided opinion in the writers on this, and I've come down on the side, I think the sons he's referring to are the, are the disciples that Jesus sent out in, in chapter 9, verses 1 to 6, and he sent out the 70, remember that? And they went everywhere, and everywhere one knew about it, and they healed, and they cast out demons, and they were part of Israel, and I think that's what he's referring to. And I, the main reason I come down on that side is that he says uh, in both Matthew and here that they will judge you. Well, it's only the redeemed that will judge. Um, and some of the, the Jews that sometimes it's said, well, they, some of the children of Israel would exercise demons in that day, 
but it's sketchy and we don't have very much on that and so on. I think he's talking about me and my disciples. And you've seen it. Who did they do it by? Was that by Satan as well? And if it is, then it's all of Satan and it's all going to collapse and fall and be ruined. What the Lord is saying here, his point is division leads to destruction. Division leads to destruction. And isn't that true in life? It's true. As a pastor, I've, uh, I've, uh, I've seen it in, in a person's uh, home life. I've seen it in marriages. Division, heartache, sorrow. I've been in a situation where uh, an older son who should have known better, shouldn't even have been at home, beat up his father. And I was there. It was horrible. He was black and blue and his eyes were shut. And I was in the... I came along several hours later. It was horrible. Father and son, husband and wife. You see it, you see it in a church. Satan is the divider. He'll divide over the stupidest stuff. We keep our eyes on Jesus only, but he works around the edges and rents the flock. He loves to do that. And we've, we've seen it. We've seen it. I've seen it through the years. A house divided against itself will crumble. Over what? It's usually stupid stuff. Never blatant sin. It's never the big one. Incidentally, it's not the big ones that ruin marriage. So little termites in the trough that work, and then bit by bit by bit by bit. Same thing in a marriage. Same thing in a church. Same thing in, in a business a partnership, or can't work together, over what? It divides. He's the divider. Same thing in sports. How many we've all played on teams? If there's division, forget it. He's a divider. It'll fall. It'll collapse. And in fact, I remind you of, of these very words used by Abraham Lincoln. He borrowed the words of Jesus in this text and he applied it to a national situation. In 1858, Springfield, Missouri, he accepted uh, the uh, Republican Party's nomination for the United States Senate, or his party's nomination. And he gave one of the most famous speeches on civil strife that was threatening to tear our nation apart. You remember that? And you can see this down at the Lincoln Memorial. It's etched right into the memorial. I remember looking at it, reading it. And he, he took the words of Jesus here, this general principle that's true to life, and he applied it nationally. A house, he, he said in his speech, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And I believe that this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. And Lincoln used Jesus' statement, made a national application of a biblical principle. Yet Jesus' words, even more important than Abraham Lincoln's at that time, for here, I'm reminded Jesus is referring to a deadlier war over a crueler slavery than required, and it required a stronger deliverer and a deliverance, a house divided against itself. Oh, that we would forbear in our homes and our lives to enjoy the peace, the shalom of God in the presence of Jesus in our marriages, in our church, places where we work. A lot of times I'll talk to folks with work. Pastor, I've got to get another job. Why? I, don't you like to work? I like to work. I can't stand the people. It's this all the time. I hate to say it. A lot of times I'll, 
And I'll say, are there a lot of uh, women there? Yes, women are the worst at it. Now, I'm quoting. I'm not saying that. The pastor said the women are the worst. I'm quoting. It's like a hen house, and they're crazy and jealous and insecurities and all that. I can't take it anymore. Divided, division. Be careful. Be careful about that. Be careful. The words of Jesus. It's not that. And so three, under C, the second option in verse 20. But if it's by the finger of God that I, I cast out these demons, and that refers to the Holy Spirit, Jesus is called the arm and the hand of God the Father. You see the Trinity, the arm? But the finger is, is the Spirit of God. Remember when Moses got the tablets? Wouldn't that have been something to see the finger of God, the Big Ten, you know, right into the stone twice? And there in, in Exodus, the, uh, the magicians in Egypt at the uh, ten plagues saw the gnats, and they couldn't duplicate it in Exodus 8.19, and they said to Pharaoh, this is by the finger of God. God has done this. And now we know it's the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God who, in fact, did that. It's God who has done that. If so, Jesus said, if, if, it's, if, if this is the case by the finger of God, you know that the kingdom of God has arrived. What? The king has showed up. Jesus came. It's the inauguration of the kingdom. It was the great day. He comes into this world that Satan controlled and held captive in darkness and death. And he came to provide deliverance and to break the power of sin, death, and Satan. That's what's going on here. This is a very important text because Jesus makes commentary about his own ministry and work. That's the reason he came. And the kingdom has arrived, the king is present, and yet will be the full manifestation of the kingdom when Jesus returns and sets up his reign. That's what we pray for. That's what he said. Pray, and your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what we're praying for, the full manifestation when Jesus comes. Well, so I got news for you. I told Faith the other day on the phone, uh, she's down with the babies helping Sarah. Greg's far away. I said, I read the paper, and I just keep looking up. I just, it is, there's going to be war there very soon. This week in the UN, uh, the, the Palestinians are going to push for statehood. It's going to be a disaster. And they're going to take it to the General Assembly and, and, and all the nations. We, we can't veto it. We will not be able to veto it. It's going to be nuts. And there are 50,000 missiles in southern Lebanon from the Iranians pointed at Israel. 50,000 and Mubarak is gone. Egypt is going to be turned into a Muslim state. They're talking about persecuting. The, they're, they're Christian, 10 million Christians, a name there. They're Coptics, a few evangelicals. It's crazy. It's coming unglued. Did you read that? The Israeli embassy was, uh, was torched this week and, and defaced, and the authorities sat around for hours and let them go at it. And they had to evacuate from Cairo a hundred and some people out of the Israeli uh, embassy. And the head of this interim government in Egypt wouldn't even pick up the phone for hours to take Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel's phone call about that. And Gaza is crazy. It's coming unglued. Turkey has pulled their embassy out of Israel. That was one of the cornerstones. Uh, Egypt, Turkey. And now if another flotilla heads towards Gaza, 
Turkey says we're going we're to guard it with battleships. And then the crazy Iranians, not the people, but the governance there, and he's developing the nuclear uh, bomb, and we're sitting around twiddling our thumbs. I, I'm telling you, uh, Israel has never been more insecure and more in danger in my lifetime than right this now. Never seen anything like it. And the prophecy is, look at Israel. They're in the land. I don't know what's going to happen. Something's going to happen. It's like a powder keg. Wow, I don't know. Look up. The kingdom. The, uh, I'm, I'm pre-milled, pre-trib. Look up. I mean, I, I think we're out of here and it's going to enter seven years. If there's a covenant of peace signed, as Daniel says, for seven years with a man of peace, a European, that revised Roman Empire, maybe a German, maybe Italian head of state, probably, I don't know, maybe Germany. Wouldn't that be something? And Hitler was really the forerunner of that guy not too many years ago in persecuting and hating and calling for peace and safety and guaranteeing that for Israel. And how about the international uh, currencies and all? I mean, do you have an eye to see or are we just looking day to day, getting by the next moment? Look up. The kingdom may be coming sooner than you think. That's just my thought. It could be 100 years. could be more. This is an exciting time. The kingdom is here. If it's by the finger of God, this miracle, know that the kingdom is inaugurated, is beginning, because the king is here. And he went to glory, and he's coming back. He's going to receive the church unto himself. All hell's going to break out on earth as he redeems the Jews for seven years, first three and a half, going to be sort of a time of peace, and he breaks it, and the world and the nations will be in Israel. Man, it's no time to fool around. If you're not saved, get saved. If you're not living for live for the Lord. A time is a wasting. We need to be busy as a church, making disciples, serving the Lord in great ways and small, a cup of water to one in need so that they may hear the gospel and be loved by Christ through us. The time is late. Satan is up to it more than ever, wreaking havoc among God's people. The kingdom of God has arrived because the king is present. Wow, the dispute. Finally, second observation, and fasten your seat belt because we're going to go here. Jesus paints a picture. Did you know he was an artist? He's going to illustrate. He tells us the significance of his healing. They were not entertainment. It wasn't a sideshow. Hey, do us a miracle, Jesus. No. It was like a neon light. Watch this. Listen to this. Note who this is. This is the Lord of glory. He's the Messiah, the Christ. A. And so Jesus, uh, first of all, he illustrates the, his point with a picture of war. A, Satan is described as, in his story, the strong-armed man who guards his palace. He's guarding it. That's the world. That's the hearts of lost men and women, all of them. He's the strong man of this world, the God of this air, of this world. And he's holding in chains, spiritual chains and darkness, the souls of men and women, boys and girls. He's holding them. That's what it has on your sheet, the souls of people. Satan holds them. He doesn't want to give any up. He's like a Scrooge holding them. So strong is this fortress, it seems unassailable. 
The demonized mute man shows it. He's held by this evil one. And Satan stands guard over his treasure. You can check Colossians 2.13 and following. Uh, over his treasure, the souls of lost men and women. It's such a terrible picture of the devil's, uh, Satan's dominion over lost sinners here. But he holds on to them. And then B, Jesus comes into the world as the stronger man who overruns Satan and his palace and he plunders his possessions. Jesus takes what was once held captive by the devil. These are men and women held in spiritual chains. Ephesians 2. He comes to to rescue the perishing, care for the dying, and to save some. Overruns Satan and, and calls out through God's calling and election men and women for the gospel's sake. And he does it. He's the stronger one. Satan isn't even by comparison. He's a creature. He comes in and he completely overruns him. There's the ease of him healing this muted blind man, just like that. He overruns Satan and his stronghold. Jesus' whole point is there's no neutral ground. All must choose Jesus or remain under the devil's domain. For the Lord said in verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me. We will either follow Jesus and join him in bringing lost men and women, boys and girls, into the kingdom. Or, Jesus said, we will stand against him and influence others not to come to him. That's a terrible thing. But that's the way it works. It's like a chain. Have you ever noticed that? God saves a man or woman, grows them in Christ, and they're burdened and either in their own family, their neighborhood at work or at school. Somebody else is drawn to the Savior through them. Maybe it skips a generation and they come to know Christ as, as the light of the gospel and the calling out of people. God's truth marches on in calling out people. As Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail. And the truth marches on. But if a person says, no way, no way, and they bear children, their children never had the privilege of sitting in Sunday school and hearing the gospel and, and humanly speaking now. And then maybe their children, maybe their children. I came from a family like that. And God saved my mother at nine years old and brought the light of the gospel into our family. And prior on the Zabolski side, have no indication that any of them were saved for generations. And we see the light of the gospel reaching, and we see the darkness that was there, and even still in some, as God's truth marches on. There's no neutrality. Neutrality is a myth. And so see Jesus as the glorious Son of God for who He is and believe upon Him as your Lord and Savior if you've not. For people must do this without delay. And if you have not yet, come to Jesus. For one man writes, a man is either on the way or in the way. Everyone is on the way or in the way. And so where do you stand? Lessons for our life. Number one, most people do not view themselves as hostile to Jesus, at least openly. I find that true. They, they uh, you know, that's good for you, or that's good for you, or I'm still seeking, or, 
You know, that's what people will say, right? That I'm spiritually open. If there's just more evidence, you know, uh, I'd, I'd be good. I'd be okay if God would just show up. In Him we live, move, and have our being, the Bible says. He's everywhere. We breathe His air. We enjoy His sunshine. We look at this incredible geo sphere that we live in, this hunk of rock, the glory of Christ, the resurrection. Jesus says, not so. Not so. People are not neutral. They're not, they're not open. They're closed. They're dead. They're blind. They're lost. And maybe that's someone here that has never come to Christ. Number two, if you have not been touched by the finger of God for salvation and you're still held captive by the devil, you may be a very nice person. And you probably are. You know, and... Uh, but until you bow the, the knee to Jesus, say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Be merciful unto me. I come before you as Lord and Savior. Thank you. You paid the price for my sin on Calvary's cross. Oh, wretched man that I am, you delivered me. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for the resurrection raised for our justification. On the third day, came back to life bodily. Praise God. Wow. If not, it doesn't matter if you won the Miss Personality Contest in your high school. You're lost. I don't care if you're the most handsome man in all the world. You're lost. I don't care if you're the best artisan at craft at what you do. You're lost, the Bible says. Lost. This is not one of many opinions. It's the Lord's final word on the subject. Number three. Use your tongue for the glory of God. Can at least we walk away with that kind of application. Can we not? God has given us a tongue to praise Him, to be a blessing. You know, sometimes it's, we say we're tongue-tied. We know what we mean by that, right? That's, uh, that's death to a pastor. Did you know that? He's tongue-tied. Yet, use your tongue for the glory of God. Pray to Him. Fellowship with Him all day long. Tell others about the glory of Christ. Be a blessing and an encourager to all that you meet. Use your tongue for His glory. You're the capstone of creation. Use it to, to share the gospel of Christ. Don't be mute with that. Sometimes we are. Share the glory of Christ. Tell your testimony. Look, I was lost. God saved me. People are always interested. And they'll say, well, that's good for you. But you can, you can really weave a lot of the gospel into that. You know, like, hey, can I ever tell you what God did for me? That'll, that's a stopper. Like, what? Yeah, let me tell you. Holy cow. I, it's a great testimony. God will use that. Use your tongue for his glory. Number four, again, no one is neutral about Jesus. Impossible. No Switzerland's. No Switzerland's. You're either for me or against me, Jesus said. Wow. That's a strong statement. You're on the turnpike going to Philly or you're going to Pittsburgh. Now, I'm not going to tell you which one's Jesus and which one's Satan. You fill, <laughs> you fill in the blank on that one. Although I would be tempted for a show of hands. I'm not going to do that. But it's, it, that's the way it is. That's it. That's it. Number five and last. Believe upon the Lord Jesus today. He died to pay your sin. He rose for our justification. The myth of neutrality. Wow. Wow. Well, it's a, it's a great day to serve the Lord, I'll tell you. That, 
that God should have us live. Now, it's not an accident like we're born at this time. Like God didn't say, well, I didn't know they were going to live now. Or in the United States, God has strategically placed us here and now, and he saved so many of us to live and to serve and to be a blessing in our homes, in our church, in our families, at work, in our neighborhoods, to love the Lord with all our heart, our soul, and our strength, and to love our neighbors. We already love ourselves. It's a myth of neutrality. Let's, let's, let's go strong, okay? Like the track guys. Let's not keep holding back. You know, you ever see a great track runner? It's a, it's a long race, and you go, like, how come he's not running faster? He's holding back for that last kick, right? And then when it comes around, and he's got no kick, and, it's, and he just sort of finishes it. Don't do that. Let's, let's go strong all the way for Jesus, all for Jesus, all for Jesus. Onward, Christian soldiers. Let's press toward the mark of the upward call. There's no time to delay. I know some of us are very tired, and we're busy. We're all busy. We got a lot of stuff. Let's pare some stuff out. Let's focus on the priority. It's the myth of neutrality. Let's stand and be dismissed. Our Father, we thank you so much for this text. It's, it's a powerful text, Lord. We thank you for it. And we thank you, Lord, that so many of us, not only we, we, we praise you that you're our creator and you've made us, and that second, that you've redeemed us. You've bought us with the price of the precious blood of Jesus. And that third, we're three times yours, that you are sanctifying us and, and growing us up and conforming us into the image of Jesus from the inside out. And I thank you so much, Lord. Even as we read the newspaper and read the events, it's scary at points. In our own economy, folks need work and and around the world, we see uh, nations faltering and economies. And then when we look at Israel, and Lord, we go like, holy cow, I don't, Lord, this, this is really something. And I thank you that the peace that you give to us after having come to know Christ and to live for you, that great shalom that you flood our hearts with, that you do all things well, and that you're in control of all things for your glory. We're so thankful for that. Help us to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, always and only. And make us a blessing, Lord, to all that we should meet. May we be uplifters with our tongue. Oh, God, deliver us from critical speech. Deliver us from vulgarity and those things of the flesh that we can easily do and say. But may our tongues be surrendered to your glory and sanctification as we bear the witness of Jesus by life and voice. In these final hours of what seemed to be the closing days of the church, we pray for that. Dismiss us with your blessing, Lord. We thank you so much. Make us a blessing to all that we meet this week. In Jesus' name, amen. We are dismissed. God bless you.